What is up, Bitcoiners? Welcome back to another episode of FedWatch. I'm sitting here with Ansel. Ansel, how you doing, my man? Good. Uh, sorry we missed last week, audience. Um, Fourth of July plans got delayed and I couldn't make it back in time. So uh, we are have a lot to cover this week. Yeah, I mean, hey, everything is constantly changing in the world of macro and central banks. And we're here to here here to cover it all, right? With Bitcoin, it's simple. 21 million, uh, you know, it's all about stability. But central banks are the opposite. Uh, it's all about kind of uh, shrouding things in uh, complexity and and, you know, the lack of simplicity in order uh, to continue operating the way they do. So we are here to unveil all of that and get right into it. Ansel has a really nice thorough list for you guys today. So let's just dive right into it. Ansel, you kind of had uh, a kickoff here uh, for us. Yeah, I just had a summary of kind of the global situation uh, update on the global economy. So, you know, uh, Everybody was kind of synchronized from the COVID crash, right, in, in 2020. And the whole world kind of entered this recovery mode, maybe a reflation. People were talking about reflation uh, for the first six months of this year. Um, and now it appears that that is worn off. Uh, and we have several different data points from around the world that kind of show that uh, we are rolling over, possibly going you know, back into some sort of recession or maybe a double half of this recession. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. But the data points that I pulled out here are first the Chinese uh, reserve requirement. They had a surprise cut of 50 basis points. So for people familiar with fractional reserve banking, you know, this is the amount that you have to keep uh, in reserve. You can't lend out. And um, so usually... The Keynesian idea is that you will lower this during bad times, right? Because then you'll get more, the banks to lend more. Uh, and you can increase this during good times. And that kind of smooths out the business cycle a little bit. But if China it has a surprise drop in their reserve requirement, uh, perhaps they're sliding out of recovery and back into some sort of slowdown. So that's the first data point. The second data point is the German manufacturing PMI. And Germany is kind of a bellwether economy. They obviously are the largest economy in Europe. They're heavy into manufacturing. And so they kind of are a good proxy for um, much of the global economy. Um, and just recently now in June, their manufacturing PMI printed uh, below 50. So, or right at 50, um, it, I think it was like 49.9. So it's in contraction. What's a PMI, by the way? PMI is the Purchasing Manager's Index. So it measures, um, it's a survey that uh, uh, questions businesses like, are you doing more business than last month or less business than last month? Um, and any reading, 50 is the same. So if it's over 50, that means they're, the economy is kind of expanding. And if it's under 50, that means the purchasing managers are saying the economy is contracting. So Got this it. reading came in right at 50. Um, and it that's bad news. If you think about all of the stimulus, quote unquote stimulus that's going on, um, going from around 60 down to 50 in one month is a pretty big pullback in the German economy. The last data point here from our sweeping round the world uh, summary is Japan and 
their government bonds. So their 10-year Japanese uh, JGB, the government bond, uh, was as high as 20 basis points earlier this year. And now it's gone back down to zero. So their interest rates are falling. Um, so that means most of the developed economy's interest rates are falling. Uh, the dollar has begun to strengthen. Um, and for a recovery and inflation, you know, to continue, then you need to have interest rates rising. You need to have the economy expanding. Uh, and you need to have people feeling like there's a lot of opportunities to go out there and um, create new jobs and expand the economy. But we're not seeing that at all. We're seeing this rollover right before the recovery kind of gets its feet under it. How was that summary? I mean, it, it makes sense. And it's very interesting to kind of hear the juxtaposition of strengthening dollar and um, hyper inflation at home, right? And these kind of like narratives that we'll probably jump into later. Um, but um, it is just, it, it, I feel like you can kind of see the backdrop that you put and then you can kind of uh, put the cryptocurrency and Bitcoin market against it. And it makes this drawdown make a lot more sense, right? Like it's difficult to have a bull market when everything else is kind of tanking right now. And um, you know, again, that's that's kind of weighing on on Bitcoin too. Yeah, one thing I didn't put in my notes here, but I I, I came across the headline is junk bonds. The the rate on junk bonds in the U.S. is below the inflation rate. So I mean, there's really no place to put your money, and for me, that is a huge um, sign or a huge opportunity for Bitcoin because. You know, if there's no real place to put your money to make money right now, Bitcoin looks like a great opportunity. So it's the least risky thing on the risk spectrum, right? Yeah, like yeah. in terms of like there's this like perceived risk spectrum. People perceive Bitcoin to be this kind of like volatile, risky thing. But if you actually understand the, the fundamentals, like, yes, it has the upside, but it's also extremely, extremely conservative and extremely, extremely sound and robust. Well, yeah, and we're, we are just completing, hopefully just completing a period of very low volatility for Bitcoin. We've been stuck between 30 and 35,000. And for Bitcoin, that's uh, extremely low volatility. Yeah, I mean, the, the range has been getting to people too. I can see it on Twitter. Yeah. People are being, are getting frustrated. Like this range is, people want that upside volatility, especially during a bull market. Um, I definitely want to talk more about Bitcoin at the end of the show like we usually do. But um, let's kind of transition to the Fed, right? So you're talking about in the world, the dollar is strengthening. All of these growth metrics are showing, uh, you know, showing that they're starting to decline. You know, that's showing recession and things are getting bad. And then on the flip side, uh, with the Fed and in the U.S., uh, there's a very strong inflation narrative that is starting to hit the mainstream. Uh, and there's a lot of pressure on the Fed to do something about it uh, and a lot more scrutiny onto what is happening currently with the QE program. You want to hit in on this, Ansel? Yeah, it, it's interesting because I'm sure the Fed is looking at all of these data points around the world and they're seeing that it's rolling back over. But they also are getting this social pressure from people in the media, probably some uh, CEOs of some banks and, and other things saying, oh my gosh, inflation, we're scared of inflation. 
Um, and so they're going to have to try something. Um, and central banks are not very creative, right? The, the biggest, the only thing they know how to do is to increase reserves. So that's why QE happens is because QE increases the reserves uh, in the system. Uh, but now I've, some of the talk that I've seen is that they're going to kind of uh, differentiate between the mortgage-backed security portion of QE and the treasury portion of QE. And there's no reason that they, that they can answer why they're still buying mortgage-backed securities. Uh, the banks don't need it. That, that market, the real estate market is fairly healthy right now. And so um, there is no reason to be buying these mortgage-backed securities. And so I think possibly if there is some sort of taper, which Jackson Hole is coming up next month, which is the big yearly meeting uh, of these central bankers, that maybe there will be some talk about tapering the mortgage-backed security portion of QE. So this is more or less a hunch that you have. Yeah, it's a hunch, but it's it's been making its rounds kind of uh, in some headlines and in some articles. Gotcha. So um, pressure on the Fed to do something about inflation. Uh, real estate market looks healthy, right? Real estate prices are going up, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it is a healthy market. Uh, so mortgage-backed securities, which they probably just never stopped buying since 2008 or 2009 or whenever they started, um, you know that that's kind of getting some scrutiny. Kind of curious in your mind if we just play this forward. Let's say they ax that that buying. Like, does the market react to it? Does that affect uh, some aspect of either like the the repo markets or um, the the real estate market in general? Like, what's What's kind of your gut here? Well, the repo market will be concerned about the treasury purchases, not the mortgage-backed security purchases per se. So um, one thing they could do is if they decrease the amount of mortgage-backed securities, they could actually increase the amount of treasuries. And so, for example, if they decrease the amount of mortgage-backed security purchases by $20 billion a month and they increase treasury purchases by 10 they could still claim that they're decreasing, they're tapering by 10, um, but they're in fact increasing this in a certain, they're more tailoring it towards the, the treasury. So there's a few things that they could do. Uh, my guess would be do the le least creative thing. And that's probably what the central bank is going to do because they don't want to rock the boat. So um, we might see something very conservative, like 5 billion off of the mortgage backed securities, to see to test if the market is going to have some sort of taper tantrum, which, if all of these kind of reflationary trades uh, or signals of the trade being done uh, are true, then that could there could be very well be a taper tantrum, even with a five billion dollar cut to the monthly QE. Yeah, well, I mean, it seems like a lot of it is narratives as well, right? Um, so. Uh, the narrative is going around. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the the impression management is a double-edged sword, right? If everyone is just kind of uh, basing reality on what the Fed is saying, then when they're saying things that the market likes, then the market reacts well to it. But when they, you know, say things that, you know, maybe uh, upset people or maybe scare people or whatever, um, you know, the narrative, I think, can can get away from them as well. 
so I definitely think it's dangerous. And we're seeing this play out. Like as we were watching this play out, it's just kind of hilarious. We're talking about impression management and here it is again. Like um, they have to impression manage uh, what they do here doesn't necessarily have a direct outcome uh, that they can foresee. And, uh, you know, we have no idea how the market is actually going to respond to any of this. Yeah, and and you brought up the reverse repo stuff, and and that hit almost a trillion dollars in overnight volume, uh, and it's some estimates are it could go as high as two trillion dollars in overnight volume. I mean, it's that is a problem. Um, it's a problem in that I don't think it's like we've talked about this before. I don't think it's imminent that that is going to cause a math mathematically that's not going to cause a problem. What's going to cause the problem is people are going to see two trillion, and they're going to get scared, right? They're going to say something is wrong, and that is going to inform all of their other market decisions. Um, and it could, I mean, it could uh, have other consequences. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, kind of speaking on consequences, a little bit closer to retail. Um, Wells Fargo is having um, some kind of headline shakeups here. You want to dive into kind of what's happening with Wells Fargo, which is a bank that is frequently in the news. You know, this is not kind of the first time that uh, something's been up with Wells Fargo. Yeah, we uh, they're constantly in the headlines. And uh, they remember when was that about two or three, four years ago when they were uh, signing up customers from extra accounts. And they were getting, they got in trouble for that. And now they recently paid a big fine for that. Um, and just a couple weeks ago now, I think it was two weeks ago already, out of the blue, they said they're going to close all of their personal lines of credit accounts. So it, why are they doing that? I don't know. They did something similar during the great financial crisis, but it was more tailored towards like, you know, everybody didn't lose their lines of credit. It was, it was much more tailored to specific risk uh, people that are more risky. Um, but now they, they say they're pivoting to other business, some sort of other business, but uh, it's people are really confused at why they would just close all of these personal lines of credit out of the blue. So when you say personal lines of credit, like these are credit cards, like mortgages, stuff like that. Uh, student debt, like what, what, what constitute just for uh, someone who may be ignorant about the general term? Um, uh, well, it wouldn't be a, like your primary mortgage, but uh, you can go out and get an equity line of credit. Uh, so if you have, say you have uh, $50,000 in equity in your house and you want to update your kitchen or your bathroom, you would go to the bank and you would get maybe a $20,000 line of credit and that would be an equity line of credit. Um, credit cards, I don't think fall under this particularly, but it's any sort of personal loan that you would get from the bank. It can also be if you are a sole proprietor or you have a small LLC of some sort and you wanna take out a personal uh, loan to buy equipment for your uh, small business, I think that would fall under the personal line of credit. So those are the types of things we're talking about. So it's, it's really kind of an attack again on retail, people who are using Wells Fargo um, in the economy. Um, Can you talk a little bit about like, what's the experience for someone who like, okay, Wells Fargo closes these lines of credit. They make an announcement, probably have like a date where these lines close. Like, 
does that mean, hey, loan is due, you need to go refinance or figure out how to come up with the money by this date? Um, like, how does that work? Well, the lines of credit will have a certain term and, uh, you know, interest rate. And so those will just get, they will go to completion and Wells Fargo just won't do any more lines of credit, you know? Um, and what, what does that do for these people? Uh, well, it closes their account and that can ding their credit. So, I mean, I'm not an expert in this particular field, but uh, if you get an account closed by a bank, it's going to ding your credit. So this is a very fishy and I don't really um, know what they're thinking by this, but my hunch is, again, a hunch, is that uh, they, they see something coming in the economy and they don't want to be exposed to this type of business. Okay. I mean, again, uh, makes sense. And I would love to dive into what you think the, like, let's just say what's happening under the surface. Uh, but anecdotally, I'll just kind of add on to the fact that Wells Fargo is kind of a dick when it comes to their customers' credit. Um, when it comes to premium credit cards that have an annual fee, typically every single bank except for Wells Fargo will allow you to downgrade that credit card to uh, a free credit card that the bank offers. So that way you don't close that credit card if you're over it. If you're like, hey, I'm over this. You know, I did the points reward thing. You know, I don't want to renew this next year. I don't want to pay this 200 bucks or whatever. You know, Chase or uh, City, they'll let you say, hey, you know, I want to downgrade this card to a free version of the card. Wells Fargo is the only credit card uh, issuer that won't do it. They like if you're done with that premium card and you want to like downgrade it, they just close the card and open up a new card for you. Um, so, uh, and that dings your credit. So, uh, again, like Wells Fargo is not your friend and that's just like a small, small example there. But, um, let's talk about what's under the surface here. Like why, like we've been talking about how central bank activity, low interest rates, um, and QE have all been disincentivizing banks to loan, right? Unless it's like the perfect customer right? That's going to take on a massive loan. Like, why would they loan it out? They're not going to make any actual income from it. They're not going to beat inflation. Like, there's uh, there's very little incentive. And here is another example of a bank that's pretty much saying, like, we're going to stop loaning in the future uh, to a certain cohort of people. All right, let's take a quick break from that episode. I want to tell you guys about our sponsor. It is Bitcoin 2022 Conference. I am sure you saw the videos. You may have been there in person. Bitcoin 2021 was an absolute smashing success. It was the biggest conference in Bitcoin history, crypto history, whatever history of the digital asset sphere. Bitcoin is number one and the Bitcoin 2021 conference is number one with a bullet. It was an absolutely incredible time. I was working my ass off the whole time, but I got to meet so many incredible community members. And I think the best testament to how amazing Bitcoin 2021 was, was not just all of the amazing, you know, accolades and, uh, and compliments that I got personally and our team got, but also it's the skin in the game in Bitcoin 2022. We have already sold close to 1500 tickets. That is more than 10% of the people, everyone who went to Bitcoin 2021 have already purchased tickets to Bitcoin 2022. We have not released a date. We have not released a city. We have not released anything. That is the biggest compliment. That is the biggest skin in the game of the community being down for this conference. 
Bitcoin 2022 is going to be bigger than Bitcoin 2021. It's going to be better than Bitcoin 21 in every single way. And we are going to be bringing you the best opportunity to mingle with the biggest, the baddest, the most Bitcoin people on the planet. So join the revolution. Go to b.tc forward slash conference. Get your tickets today. I don't know what the ticket prices are. They are going up. I think they're $249 right now. We just rolled out fiat ticket uh, purchases. All the tickets purchased before today were all purchased in BTC. So get it, guys. Get it. Get this ticket. Be at Bitcoin 2022. See you there. Bitcoiners, I want to tell you guys about the Deep Dive. The Deep Dive is a new premium newsletter from the Bitcoin Magazine team in conjunction with my man, BTCization, Dylan LeClaire. Dylan is such a multifaceted and wide-ranging analyst. He does everything from on-chain analytics to macro uh, analysis to uh, you know hash rate and all that kind of good stuff. He does it all. He breaks down everything that's happening every single day with his daily dive. He's going to dive into what is happening in the market that day. So that way you don't have to pay attention to Twitter. You don't have to pay attention to anything else. You can just pay attention to the deep dive and he has you covered. And at the end of the week, guess what? You get a weekly recap. And at the end of the month, hey, we have a freaking report, a beautiful PDF breaking down all the activity of that entire month, what it means for Bitcoin, what you can expect moving forward. The Bitcoin market is going to moon. We are here to make sure that we maximize your stack. Go to members.bitcoinmagazine.com to sign up today. And if you use promo code BITS, you can get one month for free. So again, the deep dive, I've been checking it out every day and you should too. Back to the show. Yeah, I mean, the unemployment rate has been very sticky. Um, again, the reflation type of uh, um, boost that the economy was supposed to see in the summertime as we reopened and as some of the, uh, you know, kind of stimulus made its way through the economy, um, we're not seeing that. Um, at least I'm personally not seeing it. And in a lot of the statistics, we're not seeing it. And so perhaps Wells Fargo is seeing that, you know, these people aren't going to be able to make their payments. Uh, there's going to be another shoe to drop at some point in the future. And we want to limit our, our exposure to a falling economy or slowing economy. Interesting. I mean, again, uh, guys, FedWatch has been ahead of the curve on all of these narratives, on all of these things, at least a couple months ahead. So um, very interesting to hear about this Wells Fargo news. Very interesting to kind of see how other players start to react if these kind of services start getting more, more and more limited. Um, you know, I wouldn't be shocked. Again, when interest rates are hitting zero, what, in, what incentive do they have to make these loans? Like this is just operational overhead and risk at some point, right? So it makes sense. Let's dive into CPI. Again, we talked deflation a lot in the last few shows. Uh, we've been kind of hinting around this like heavy inflation narrative now. And just this morning, you know, people are talking about the CPI numbers showing, you know, above 5% inflation year over year. And so do you want to kind of dive into the CPI numbers? Yeah, uh, month over month. So from last month to this month, it was 0.9%, almost 1% increase in the CPI. And that's pretty significant. Um, year over year, so from last June to this June, it was a 5.4% increase. 
um, again, higher than even May, which I believe May was 5.2 and this is 5.4. So the, the, the rate of increase is slowing um, quite a bit here. And my big thing is that there's different components, obviously, to CPI and, and people always have opinions about how accurate CPI is and um, whether the hedonic adjustments are um, like honest, if they're good for uh, how to measure inflation. Um, I don't think it's, it's perfect, obviously, but I think it's pretty good. Uh, the, there are two big effects very recently, the last few months into CPI, and that has been the used car portion. Um, I think they said that uh, in May, it was 1% one, 1 of the 5% of the inflation came from the used car segment. And uh, once again, the used cars are very high. I think they've gone up 30, 30 to 40% in the used car index that they actually track these things um, for the price of used cars just in the last few months. So uh, that's very significant. Also, um, one of the things people talk about is housing. Uh, the cost of um, houses have gone up, but the, well, let, let me hit oil first, sorry. So oil has also been going up dramatically. Uh, I thought it was going to top out around 60 to 65, but it keeps going to 70, 75 uh, bucks here. And that uh, can have a dramatic effect on the CPI. So um, oil and used cars seem to be pushing this CPI higher. Um, I did want to get into housing affordability, but uh, do you have any comments so far? Well, it's interesting, like when the CPI is interesting because I feel like it doesn't necessarily measure everything that's happening in the economy, but a lot of the things that it is measuring right now are being affected, right? And maybe this used car thing is transitory. But in the current term, it's really being reflected because used cars are something that is, you know, obviously a big part of what is being measured in the CPI. So it is kind of interesting. Uh, but then you look at that and is the CPI reflecting the strengthening of the dollar globally? Like, I, I don't know. Um, it's just kind of it's really hard to kind of get a, a feel of what's actually happening. And that's why that's why we need Bitcoin, because the current system can't show us that transparency. It can't. Like, I guarantee you, we will know um, a lot more about all the supply chains in the world. We'll know a lot more about how all of these markets work as soon as these central bankers and these manipulating central planners get out of the way and allow us to implement a transparent ledger. Yeah, and it also, to me, it just highlights the need for a very precise definition of what we're talking about. Um, are we talking about asset price inflation? Well, that's going to be a different number than if we're talking about, you know, basic needs, um, housing, um, again, used cars and new cars. I mean, the, the used cars are being affected, obviously, because there's um, a huge backlog in manufacturing of the new cars due to the chip shortage. So the, a lot of people are going to used cars and I think it's worse than trucks. So maybe that's businesses that need F-150s or uh, certain large trucks and they're having to go on into the used market because they just can't buy any new cars. So that is directly, that's not if the, a printing thing, that is directly from a supply chain effect 
on prices. So, you know, it's very hard to uh, even talk about inflation, CPI, money printing. It's, you have to pull back every little thread and see where it leads. Yeah. I mean, again, it, it, it's tough to kind of dig into all of it. And I mean, we try to do a good job on this show. Again, like I, I, I just kind of think about the last 50 shows we've done and how it has personally set me up to kind of not be as shocked about what's happening in the economy where, you know, I talk to other people, even in the Bitcoin space, even in the, the cryptocurrency space and the macro econ uh, economic space, uh, and they're not as well prepared. So thank you, Ansel, for, you know, always, you know, kind of doing this research and putting all of this kind of in front of us and not in front of the audience. Um, let's talk a little bit about Bitcoin, right? So, I mean, obviously, hash rate is kind of making a little bit of a recovery off of its lows uh, the last two weeks. Uh, but in general, there's still a lot of uncertainty and volatility in the hash rate and mining ecosystem. Uh, beyond that, you know, we're seeing prices dip today. Today is Tuesday. The show is being released tomorrow on uh, Wednesday, I believe. The uh, is that the thirteenth? <laughs> I should have this in front of me. Wednesday the fourteenth. Um, so, I mean, like, let's let's just jump into like what you're seeing in the Bitcoin market. Oh man, um, well, it's been extremely low volatility. Uh, it's been pretty boring. Uh, maybe the quiet before the storm here uh, for the next kind of leg of this market. A lot of people are expecting uh, it to drop to the mid-20s before it takes off again. Um, is that possible? Yes, it's very possible. Uh, that would be an extremely good buy-the-dip opportunity for most Bitcoiners out there. But uh, I, I don't think it's going to go down there. I think we're we're in a sideways action and there's going to be something coming up here in the near future. Um, and uh, Bitcoin is going to go on its next leg higher. What do you think? Do you think we go lower before we go up? Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. Um, I, I'm not good at price predictions, although I can generally read the tea leaves. I've done a good job of calling like local tops and altcoin mania. I think I've done it the the last two years pretty effectively. But um, in general, it's it's tough to tell when Bitcoin's going to pump. That's why I just try to stack aggressively and consistently uh, when it is really close to one on the mayor multiple. Uh, so that's the 200-day moving average. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I think there's a lot of moving parts right now. And there's a lot of like things that could create a shock and capitulation event. Uh, we've already had a couple of those shocks mm -hmm. and capitulation events just in the last month and a half. Um, so I could, we could be up, we could have one or two more, you know, there, that's not out of the question, but eventually my expectation is that we're going to start ticking up. Um, uh, my expectation is people are going to keep stacking, but with that being said, this is something that we talked about a lot in the beginning of 2020, which is like, okay, everyone in Bitcoin is super bullish on Bitcoin, but as the economy gets worse and people's personal lives start being affected, their ability to continue to stack, their ability to keep earning and support the Bitcoin price also wanes. So um, the dynamics here, you know, there's just so much going on. It's so fascinating. So. My assumption is that we we continue to like let's just say consolidate down and then pop back up because that's what we've seen multiple times. But 
you know, if that is going to remain accurate or true here, we'll see. Yeah, a lot of people are talking about this uh, GBTC unlocking that's happening. And so what if that's coming up on the 18th, I believe. So uh, four days from when this is released. And people are speculating that uh, people will short the spot market and buy discounted GBTC at that point. Um, I don't know how how well that trade will work and whether uh, how many people will partake in that trade. Some Somebody on Twitter was saying there's going to be billions of dollars in that trade, but I, I highly doubt that. Um, that could be, though, a point in the sand that a lot of people, uh, maybe big money, they're kind of looking at that and saying, okay, well, let's wait and see how that shakes out before we, you know, continue our buying or get into the market. So um, there's some of those things. Also, as hash rate, like you started this section on Bitcoin here with hash rate, um, as hash rate does start ticking up and people get their confidence back that, oh my gosh, this is not a death spiral. We don't need China. We have all of these new opportunities uh, out there for Bitcoin mining that, uh, you know, once people get that and get their confidence back, then, um, you know, it'll just add to the whole um general feeling that bitcoin is back and bitcoin has turned turned the corner yeah the gbtc thing is is very interesting um and i mean that trade makes a lot of sense right um but at the same time if there is truly that much money piling into that trade uh i wouldn't be surprised if (laughs) that trade gets effed over just like the contango trade got effed over and the gbtc um, you know, is it the cap and carry or the, the cap or I forget the name of the trade. Is it, uh, what was the name of that, the GBTC trade when, when there was a massive premium? No, I don't cash and carry. Something yeah. Like the that. cash and carry trade. So, um, yeah, I mean like if there's no such thing as risk-free yield, so, you right. know, that's going to get arbed out and then people who are, you know, too heavy weighted in their short position are going to get wrecked. So, uh, I would I, popcorn. I'm excited to see it. <laughs> yep, more fuel to the fire. Add some shorts on there so we can squeeze them. Yeah, load up the shorts, please. I love it. <laughs> all right, Ansel, this was a fun rip. Uh, thanks for all of these fantastic updates. Do you want to talk about your article that's going to be dropping on Bitcoin Magazine in the next couple of days here? Yeah, I just uh, did a quick geopolitical survey of El Salvador. So I broke it up into uh, geography, economy, politics, demographics, um, and tried to look at how Bitcoin was going to affect them. Um, A lot of people have talked about moving there or at least visiting El Salvador. A lot of Bitcoiners are. And so uh, try to set people up with an idea of what to expect, maybe over the horizon. Yes, they might have a short-term boost from doing this, but Uh, What does it look like five, 10 years down the road? Uh, So I'd kind of dive into that. Awesome. Well, I'm excited for it to get posted and I'm excited to talk to you about it next week. So next week's episode, uh, we're going to focus on diving into uh, this research in the survey that Ansel did. And we're going to try something new as well. So uh, we'll see if it sticks, but Ansel is going to be dropping a lot more kind of 
economic content on Bitcoin Magazine. And uh, when it makes sense, we'll, we'll be covering it on this show as well. So keep an eye out for all of that. But until then, make sure to follow Bitcoin Magazine at Bitcoin Magazine. Follow me at CK underscore Snarks. Follow Ansel at Ansel Lindner. Five-star reviews, share with your friends, all that good stuff. Peace. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.